What is a city? In the very few early settlements that have been extensively investigated in Southwest Asia, such as Shatelhuyuk, it is possible to discern the form of settlements and their societies at a time before cities developed. Shatelhuyuk could be called a village or perhaps a town, but it doesn't have a scale and structured society that is found in later cities. Ian Hodder has produced a book, The Leopard's Tale, and the subtitle designates Shatelhuyuk as a town in inverted commas. So you have to learn how to pronounce the word town with inverted commas. Professor Trevor Watkins is based in Edinburgh University. He specialises in Near Eastern prehistory. It's a real puzzler because the conventional model has been of village farming societies or village farming economies, and it patently isn't a village. But the question then is, what is it? And for quite a long time, people have looked for signs of social or political hierarchy in societies, which is where complex gets fairly muddled because people who look for complexity in hunter-gatherer societies, assuming that complexity will be a social hierarchy. But uh, one of the things that Ian Hodder is most clear about, after they've been working there for 16 years now, is that there is absolutely no sign of any social distinction. The problem then becomes, how do you envisage a society of that size, which is almost urban. It's bigger than Jericho, for example, when Jericho was a Bronze Age city. Nobody's uncomfortable about calling Jericho a city in the Bronze Age, yeah? but Chatelhuyuk is bigger and has a much denser population. So, Chatelhuyuk is not a city. It may be large and dense when compared to other later cities like Jericho, but is there an absolute size that cities need to achieve before they can be called cities? Chris Scar is Professor of Archaeology at Durham University. Abu Salabik is, is a settlement in Mesopotamia where the estimated population size is something like 2,000, 3,000, which is hardly bigger than a, a large village in modern Britain. So you've got to kind of scale it down in, in terms of absolute size at the same time as recognising that what we're looking for isn't simply size. Size is part of it, but it's also its position in a, a hierarchy of settlements, a network of settlements of different sizes, and the sort of functions that these places perform in terms of being government functions or marketplaces for exchange or manufacture. So it's not just scale, density and social complexity, but also a place where social complexity is focused and projected onto the surrounding territory. What is this like on the ground? Excavations at Hierakonpolis, a site 100 kilometres south of Luxor in Egypt, show how a large settlement of 10,000 people was organised. Dr. Rennie Friedman of the British Museum. At Hierakonpolis, we're not really seeing a time when there wasn't a strong leader. So it does appear that the temple is kind of the centre. You have administrative buildings around that. And then you start to get the houses around that. And then to one side, you have all your industrial areas. There's quarters to this town. It's very much ordered. So we have to, at least for Egypt perhaps rethink this development from a leaderless society to one that is so led, because in Egypt certainly being led is the characteristic, is the hallmark of being Egyptian. You loved your pharaoh. He made the world go round. He kept everything in order. Size and social complexity are important, but how do we actually define cities? Michael Smith is based at the University of Arizona. He specialises in Mesoamerica. Archaeologists tend to use one of two definitions of the city or of what is urban. 
And uh, these are the demographic approach and the functional approach. And the demographic approach fits our sort of Western conception of what a city is. It goes back to the Chicago School of Sociology in the 1930s. It says that a city is a permanent settlement with a large population, with a dense population, and also evidence of social complexity, whether that's occupational specialists or ethnic groups or social classes. Now that definition fits our modern notion of what a city should be, and it fits some ancient settlements. However, if we look at Mesoamerica, there's only a couple of sites in the whole of Mesoamerica that would qualify as cities under that definition. The Aztec imperial capital Tenochtitlan would qualify. It had a couple of hundred thousand people in quite a large area. The large classic period metropolis Teotihuacan would qualify, but many of the Maya cities would not qualify. The alternative functional approach to urbanism is better suited to non-Western areas where there's a greater diversity of urban forms. And the functional definition defines a city as a place that had activities and institutions that affected a larger hinterland. So you have things like religious activities, political activities, economic processes. If they happen in a city and they affect a, an area outside the city's boundaries, we call them urban functions. And by the functional definition, then of course the great Maya settlements were cities, and this affects Aztec cities outside of Tenochtitlan. So, we need to look for evidence of religious and political organization as well. What is more, the power of the city extends into the surrounding territory forming a state, and cities and states go together. What kinds of evidence can we find for these abstract notions of political power and the state? A good example is the Nama palette found in Hierakonpolis. Dr. Rennie Friedman. The palette of Narmer was our earliest evidence for the unification of Egypt because you have the king wearing the white crown, the bowling pin crown of Upper Egypt, smiting someone who would appear to come from the delta. So it showed Upper Egypt or the Nile Valley triumphing over the delta people, which makes it a what's been called a proto-kingdom. And then there's another proto-kingdom based on Abydos and another one based on Nagadas, and that somehow these coalesced. We think that Nagada was defeated. Perhaps a coalition of Abydos and Hierakonpolis got together and thrust out Nagada because a lot of the symbolism that the Nagada kings used falls away. We don't see it again. But the symbolism that the Hierakonpolis kings used and the Abydos kings used continue. So we think maybe there was a dynastic marriage because we don't see any evidence of a battle between the two. And once you've got all of Upper Egypt unified, then you can go and smite the delta, because somebody in the middle couldn't go north without making sure that the south was you know, not going to attack them from behind. But I think it was something that went on in spurts. I think these proto-kingdoms reached certain crisis points. There are a number of reasons for the formation of cities. One suggestion is that cities and states are formed through the force or agency of an individual. One very powerful argument, though by no means the only argument for the formation of states and cities, is that people are forced to come together in these coalitions, you might say, in order for security, basically. 
And certainly there, there are many cases of where we know the, there is a formation of what we call secondary states, that a state forms, and all the communities around it have to form into more organised societies themselves in order to be able to resist this very powerful centrally organised polity, really, in the middle. And you wonder whether one of the pressures bringing people together into states and making them obedient, as it were, to the dictates of central government and not just walking off and you know doing their own thing, is that they have to go along with that in order for their own protection. So they may be coerced from within by the authority, central authority, they may be coerced from without by people who would take advantage of them if they weren't part of this consolidated, powerful group. But is physical force, or the protection from it, the only factor? It's easier, in some ways, to understand the argument about the coercion or the threat of violence, to understand how that brings people together into a, a city or a state. But it, equally, it's interesting to notice how some important early cities or early states had a religious component, and in the absence of direct evidence as to exactly what processes formed them, it may be that it's the power of some sort of religious authority that brought them together. But think of the ideology or religion surrounding the king and this idea of the establishment of a state religion. And what you have is a state religion which associates the king with certain gods, initially Ra in the Egyptian pantheon. And to what extent that is an engineered kind of a situation, a religion which suits the, the monarchy, is actually perhaps a religion abstracted from a rather less coherent set of beliefs, perhaps regionally different beliefs throughout Egypt in the pre-state period, and is sort of brought together, formalised, and formalised in such a way that the king, the monarchy, the elite, the central state, is at the apex of a, you know, of a religious kind of structure as well as of a political structure. Do we get similar situations in other parts of the world? One example is the city of Teotihuacan in Mexico, which is the largest city before European contact in the Americas, which has at its heart a massive pyramid built over what was originally a natural cave. And that cave has an incredibly important religious significance. So perhaps it was the power, the religious authority conveyed by that, uh, which brought people to this developing state is developing city and then over the course of time secular and religious power are consolidated and what you end up with at Teotihuacan is a city which is laid out on a grid plan in fact it develops in one form and then at one point in its history all the, the residential areas are laid out in a grid pattern which is an enormous undertaking it's a very impressive event in that it must mean that the thousands or tens of thousands of people who've been living there must have been willing to be displaced and resettled in the grid plan form. So these powers, which may be religiously at least sanctioned, do have uh, you know, a huge potential to guide people and to make people respond in certain ways or tolerate certain things, if you want to put it that way.